You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopoly through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Renegade Economist. This week, I'm going to get fired up because I am pissed off with some of my white middle-class male friends who are becoming more and more radicalised by uh, the far right and uh, stepping into... uh, these false dichotomies that uh, the insecure promote to maintain the superiority of the white race. And uh, these types, you just really can't rationale with them. How many years of bombing the Middle East have we engaged in? 30, 40 years versus how many years have the Western world been facing similar acts of terrorism, something that uh, uh, these types just uh, will not accept. They are concerned about the rise of Islam. They're concerned about the statements of power enlisted in the statements of superiority and willingness to destroy Western society that could easily be found in the Bible. I'm looking to do a few shows on this over the coming months, so uh, we'll just start off here. But, uh, of course, one of the big drivers of this all is population growth rates and the dramatic changes that are occurring in the West. And uh, when you look at America, I thought it was quite interesting uh, looking at the demographics there. A white person is defined as anyone having origins in Europe, the Middle East, or North Africa. Interesting. By 2050, non-Hispanic whites will make up just 46.3% of the population, down from 85% in 1960. And whilst Australia doesn't have such uh, dramatic changes uh, occurring in in its makeup, similar clutching at straws type Phenomenons are occurring where those who are feeling marginalized by the increased casualization of the workforce via the incredible cost of keeping a roof over one's head, concerned at the complexity of filling out so much tax paperwork, things just aren't adding up. And when you throw on top of it uh, various free trade agreements giving corporations more control than individuals, it's easy to look for an easily understandable lens to decipher the madness we see on our TV screens every night with the nightly news. So it's been a while since I've talked about this guy, Thomas Melthus, and uh, this schism on critical analysis that continues to exist day by day and on the left there's a body of people who are concerned about environmentalism and blame everything on population growth now thomas melthus essays on the principle of population remember that was released in 1798 that was a year before the end of the french revolution and uh 
the aristocrats were very worried that uh, the masses were going to catch on to uh, uh, this uh, desire to uh, behead the aristocrats and uh, were very happy to see Thomas Malthus come out and uh, release this treatise, which uh, at first glance seems to make some sense, but uh, when you delve into it, you soon recognise that uh, it's a rich person's perspective to divide and conquer everyday people from grasping the true forces of inequality. It was essentially a document to keep the masses under the sacred clutch of the church and the philosophy of the ruling elite. And Melthus, his big concern was, look, population is growing at a geometric rate while food is growing at an arithmetic rate. Essentially, he was uh, blaming the poor for their ills and uh, uh, essentially asking them to choose between sex and food as uh, the big choice of the times if you'd like to look after yourself then uh, show some control and have less kids but for myself and those who have read henry george who goes into this story in incredible detail in progress and poverty looking back over hundreds if not thousands of years at the rise and fall of societies and he comes back to this line we keep talking about uh, in that uh, as inequality increases There's less money for health and education. Therefore, the Ethiopian farmer needs to have 10 kids in order for two to survive. We're now going to go to a clip by a YouTube channel called Crash Course in World History. And uh, John Green has 6.8 million subscribers. He's receiving $30,000 a year in Patreon donations. Goodness me, should I set one of those up? But hey, he does a great job, and uh, this clip delves into uh, this Melthus issue of population and whether it's going to destroy the world. So uh, what can we do as the climate continues to suffer and inequality continues to expand? We'll have a look at that in light of the Human Development Index and the Charter of the Forest post this clip. Hi, I'm John Green, this is Crash Course World History, and today we're talking about one of my least favorite subjects, the end of humanity. Today we're going to learn about a theory about the downfall of civilization. And unlike all the true theories, this one doesn't involve aliens or robots or robot aliens, but it is related to environmental catastrophes of the man-made variety. Today we're going to look at population and the most persistent theory about population growth and its effect on humanity, the one proposed by Thomas Malthus. And what's amazing about the persistence of this theory is its complete lack of connection to actual human history. All right, so in 10,000 BCE, fewer than a billion people lived on Earth. Nearly 12,000 years later, around 1800 CE, human population had grown to still under a billion. And about that time, an Anglican minister named Thomas Malthus wrote an essay on the principle of population that explained why this slow population growth was the way things were always going to be. Malthus saw the growth 
growing number of poor people on the English streets, and he did what any reasonable thinker would do. He analogized them to rabbits. He reasoned that the same forces that checked the population of rabbits would limit humans too. Predators, harsh weather, epidemics, and starvation. Now, it turns out that humans have ways of dealing with predators. We killed all the lions. And also, we've got this amazing way of dealing with harsh weather that rabbits have never figured out called clothes. Not to even get into fire and housing. So that leaves us with alien predators, disease, and starvation as the big obstacles. Okay, we're gonna address these one at a time. First, Arnold Schwarzenegger already took care of the alien predators. Thank you, Mr. Schwarzenegger. In exchange, we made you governor of California. Then we have disease. So around the time Malthus was writing, disease was becoming less dangerous to human populations. And then there's starvation, right? Well, we've argued in the past that starvation is generally a man-made problem, but to Malthus, it was still a natural disaster. For Malthus, uncontrolled reproduction was the central problem. Remember, he was, you know, coming from the context of rabbits. He explained it through math. Humans could reproduce geometrically, capable of doubling population every 25 years. But land on Earth is finite, and at best, it could only be coaxed into producing small arithmetic increases in food. So you've got population growing geometrically, food growing arithmetically, all the people are gonna die. Now, among simpler creatures, the theory went, food shortages caused immediate famine, but humans would continue to eke out ever more desperate lives as increasing demand raised the price of food and clothing and bread and medicine. Powerful individuals and nations would seize the assets of the weak, but even some of the strong would fall victim to hunger and disease. Inevitably, the population would then dip low enough for the land to recover, giving another generation a chance to repeat the same mistakes. Over time, then, human population would remain roughly constant with the natural fertility of the land. Because he was such a fun guy, Malthus called this theory of history the cycle of misery. This essay is one of the most influential pieces of writing in history, along with a handful of other works that established the methods and importance of the modern field of economics it opened the door to the universe of evolutionary science. And most immediately, Malthusian theory played a devastating role in the Irish potato famine of 1846 to 1851. Let's go to the sure-to-be-depressing thought bubble. Nearly one million Irish people died of starvation, disease, and violence during the famine, which was triggered when a fungus wiped out the one strain of potato grown in Ireland. Had Ireland's poor population had access to the thousands of other varieties of potato or aid to purchase more expensive crops, the suffering may not have been as terrible. But official English policy toward Ireland, as determined by its colonial master Charles Trevelyan, was to give no aid nor allow anyone else to give it either. He blocked American ships filled with corn from reaching the island. He allowed Irish farms that grew crops other than potatoes to sell them straight to England. Now, hundreds of years of anti-Irish Catholic hatred were the roots of England's cruel policies, but Malthusian theory also played a role. In the century before 1846, Ireland's population had grown significantly, and many English thinkers saw the famine as an outcome of Malthus's predictions. From this point of view, providing food or aid to the Irish was futile. It could only delay the cycle of misery until its downward swing scythed down even more people. Trevelyan thus felt assured of pronouncing that the only remedy for the starving was for them to die and let their corpses serve to remind the survivors not to have sex. Quote, the judgment of God sent the calamity to teach the Irish a lesson, and that calamity must not be too much mitigated. Trevelyan reassured 
reassured people upset about the news of starving children. The real evil with which we have to contend is not the physical evil of the famine, but the moral evil of the selfish, perverse, and turbulent character of the people. Thanks, Don Bubble. So why did Ireland want independence in the first place? Oh, right, yeah, that. So by 1852, emigration and starvation had shrunk the population of Ireland from about 6.5 million to 4 million. In 2010, the island's population was still lower than at the famine start, so Malthusian theory seemed to have its airtight proof, right? Well, no. In fact, even as Malthus was writing, the curve of human population growth was beginning to slope up. Upward. The increase in population was so gradual that all Malthus noticed of it were the outliers, the poor clinging to life. But the growth in the number of human beings was far more permanent than Malthus ever imagined. In fact, it was unstoppable. From 1750 to 1850, right when Malthus was alive, the number of humans on Earth grew by half a billion people, from about 800 million to 1.3 billion. By 1960, the population reached 3 billion, and since then, the world has added a billion humans roughly every 15 years. Sometime in 2009 or 2010, the United Nations estimates that the Earth's 7 billionth person was born. And consider that contrast. At the very moment that Malthus was writing that it was impossible, human population was beginning its rocket-like acceleration. So what did he miss? Well, Malthus was like an A-plus student in the subject of human existence. He was right for like 95% of history, but it turns out grades aren't a super accurate predictor of success in life. Malthus should have looked past prominent disasters like the potato famine and recognized that two major revolutions in food production were occurring while he was alive. One of the reasons that he struck out so spectacularly is that, like many Western thinkers, he wasn't paying attention to China. So Chinese farmers had altered the land and used a number of inventions like dikes and paddle wheels and bicycle chains to grow rice in man-made patties. It took a lot of labor, but it paid off, especially when they discovered that by using the entrails and bones of the fish that swam in the water, they could get, you know, fertilizer. And then they could grow two rice crops in one year. Thus, the secret of China's greatness, food. And with the benefit of added surplus, fortunate people in China were able to free up their time to study and to invent. Yet, while the birth of this system had begun in the ancient past, additions to it continued throughout Chinese history and progressed straight through the Qing Dynasty. But agriculture was also changing in Europe during Malthus's lifetime. Like, there's Jethro Tull's seed press, the crop rotation system developed by Charles Turnip Townsend, and animal husbandry practiced by scientific farmers such as Robert Blakewell, who increased the size of his sheep by selective breeding. So it kind of seems impossible that Malthus could have missed this revolution because he could see it from his house in Surrey, England. But from his perspective, that agricultural revolution had the opposite effect of what had happened in China. Like instead of giving people more food and more comfort, it seemed to Malthus that it was driving them to greater misery. That's because for lots of Europeans, the agricultural revolution was largely about evictions. The most important innovation of Europe's agricultural revolution was largely invisible. It was the decision to treat land as private property. So for most Europeans, the concept that individual humans could own, like, land was a foreign concept. Even as late as 1500, most of Europe conceived of land as rightly belonging solely to its creator, God. And then God's anointed on earth, kings and the church, could parcel out packets of land to people they chose, but any land not specifically granted to a landlord remained open to anyone who wanted to use it. This open 
Greenland was called the Commons, and in parts of Europe it made up more than half of the territory. But then, around 1100 CE, British monarchs found themselves perpetually strapped for cash, and they needed new taxes. So in return for voting for tax increases and gifts, the Crown granted enclosure acts to rich Englishmen, giving them the right to fence off the Commons and claim it as their own. So the people who'd used that land to graze animals or cut wood or grow crops could be forced off of it, and for the first time, richer people could maintain miles of fenced-in property to pasture their sheep or dig mines. Meanwhile, the dispossessed, deprived of their opportunity to grow or hunt their own food, turned to beggary and theft and to London, where they hired out their labor for wages. Wages? That's not how humans should live, having to fill out time cards and punch clocks. Wait, Stan, don't, don't you make wages? Oh, it's horrible. Myself, I live off the land. If I can't grow it, I won't eat it. So by the time Malthus was a young man, things weren't great for the poor and dispossessed. So it's a small wonder that Malthus only saw the downside of the agricultural revolution. Only through historical hindsight do we know that private property accelerated incentives to experiment with new methods of food production, which dramatically increased the amount of food produced. Like before enclosure, it wouldn't have made sense for someone to buy a seed press and plant neat rows of seeds because anybody with a cow could have trampled on them an hour later. The lower food prices created by more food supply began to ease the cycle of misery that Malthus described, although only just barely. So in fact, agricultural innovations proved that Malthus was almost entirely wrong. So why is he still influential? I think because there's a very seductive logic to the idea that resources, especially food, are finite. I mean, we live on one planet that has a certain amount of arable land, and surely at some at some point, humans will suck up all of the resources. And this is especially true in the age of global climate change. In 2014, the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change issued a report that warned of the potential for warmer temperatures to restrict food supplies in the face of growing... Well, there you have it. Thomas Malthus, an aristocrat. He missed the big thing that was happening, the enclosure of the commons, and how, by privatizing land and ostracizing the people from nature's bounty, it enforced the majority to urbanize, to head towards towns and rely on wages as a way to sustain themselves and their families. How ironic that Malthus missed that. So whilst Malthus uh, enacted this doctrine that uh, tried to entrench this divine will of survival of the fittest, it was miserly and vindictive. He was, in effect, an apologist for a corrupt system. And that, my friends, is what we still see today, is a battle between decency and insiders trying to make magic money from the fruits of the earth. It's essentially the economics of scarcity versus the economics of abundance. And anyone who is growing their own food, who has a reasonable array of perennial foods growing in their own garden or at their community garden, knows how easy it is to be able to grow a surplus and share that with your friends. What a great feeling that is. But rather than look at access to the earth, to the spoils of our natural resources, the far right has ignored this living enactment of sovereignty, of being able to produce for ourselves and instead blaming others.
rather than looking at the system itself. It's all about blaming individuals or if you're someone from Thomas Melthus' class, they are wanting you to blame particular races or religions. This is the great diversion game, divide and conquer through race, religion, but never legal privilege over the domain of the earth. And hopefully, listeners, last week's episode with Dave Wetzel, uh, an extended discussion on the Charter of the Forest and how those principles could enable a fairer system of uh, funding infrastructure can build a bridge to what we're discussing today because uh, if we can have access to those commons, we can look after ourselves. And in lieu of that physical connection, if others have access to our natural resources, then they should pay us for that privilege. If they don't, the wealth gap expands Environmental destruction occurs because there's no checks and balances from uh, the public finance system. We have lobbyocracy undermining the democratic principles of one vote, one value, replaced by one dollar for one decision. So looking at this... uh From another level, uh, I really do like uh, the United Nations Human Development Index. This is a measure not of gross domestic product. It's looking at three things. Education. How many years of schooling have you done as a 25-year-old on average? The life expectancy at birth. And the gross national income per capita, which means per person. So the number one nation on the planet, of course, is Norway, which does such a good job sharing its oil rents. Number two was Australia, tied with Switzerland, also very progressive nations where good education occurs, fantastic health is in place, and from that, lower birth rates are required. So it's a holistic way of looking at what's happening in society. It also looks at inequality, gender, environmental consequences, but the weighting is uh, heavily uh, pushed towards those three factors of education, life expectancy, and gross national income. Now, when we uh, flip the switch for... uh, these accelerants for radicalism in terms of population growth, the UN predicts that uh, between 2015 to 2050, half of the world's population growth is expected to be concentrated in nine countries, India, Nigeria, Pakistan, Democratic Republic of Congo, Ethiopia, Tanzania, United States of America, Indonesia and Uganda. And that's listed according to the size of their contribution to the total growth. Note that China is not in that list. Their population growth controls do seem to work. India, though, is uh, number one in terms of growth rates. The average uh, life expectancy there is 68.3 and their their fertility rate is 2.2. So... In terms of replacing your population, remember uh, fertility rates require a 2.1 
children per woman to replace population rates. So number two on that uh, population growth rate list is Nigeria. And let's have a look at it. They are number 152 on the Human Development Index. They have a fertility rate of 5.74 children per woman, down from six per woman. So the average age there is 17.8 years. And uh, what's going on is uh, improvements in health have led to much lower child mortality rates, which is yet to filter through culturally to recognize that uh, Nigerian parents no longer need to have so many kids if they want one or two to survive to look after them in old age. Still plenty of concerns there in terms of uh, environmental issues, but the fact is that uh, fertility rates are on the way down and uh, the UNFPA is uh, spending $12 million a year on contraceptives for Nigeria. But will that work? It's a, pretty much a 50-50 split in Nigeria between Christianity and Muslim supporters. Many Muslim communities believe that the pill and contraception is a Western conspiracy to curb the growth of uh, Muslim influence. And so contraception doesn't work so well in those areas. But what really does work is female education. That is the number one driver. If we do want to reduce the rate of growth of population in the world and in uh, the north of Nigeria in an area called Kaduna, as recently as 2008, women were expected to have 6.3 babies each over a lifetime. But by 2013, this had fallen to 4.1, well below the national average of 5.7 for that year. And that was done by spending greater resources on female education. This really is crucial. The Nigerian government has been pushing a policy called child spacing, encouraging people to have less children in a row to spread it out over time. But how do we get more funding for education? Well, regular listeners will know that uh, if uh, the oil rents from the Niger Delta were channeled away from Shell and ExxonMobil and all of the horrible warfare that's gone on down there for decades now as uh, resource thefting procedures uh, continue unabated despite the best efforts of the local community to fight back, the term one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter comes to mind. Well, if they did share those oil rents and they had a more transparent form of government, then there would be more money available for female education, more money available for family planning clinics. It's just incredible that Nigeria has increased its population from 38 million in 1950 to 181 million in 2016. Now, that rate of growth, uh, as uh, any Malthusian will tell you, is one scary, scary statistic. But uh, when you look at uh, countries like Iran, which had similar growth rates of around uh, 6 children per woman, they have fallen back to uh, 
3.2, somewhere around that level, and uh, it's getting closer to uh, being more sustainable. I suppose to finish this off, uh, I've, I've done a reasonable job in drawing a link between inequality and population growth, but uh, what needs further research is the link between Islamic radicalism and resource sovereignty. My basic insights into Muslim culture show a much deeper understanding of economic interests through the Quran than there are in the Bible. And uh, with Western imperialism storming through so many countries, my impression is that uh, it's, it's that ability to make sense of these, this resource grabbing that uh, is giving some doctrine of reality to uh, these extremist fronts. So if there were less oil wars, perhaps there'd be less radicalism. That's no biggie, but it's worth reminding ourselves, isn't it? That's so simple. I'm sure it's much more complex than that, but uh, if only those in the far right could recognise that immigration pressures uh, such as we're seeing at uh, Manus Island would not be anywhere near as great if uh, the Western hegemonic forces were not meddling in nations such as Afghanistan, Iraq, and so many other nations. Goodness knows what's going to happen when climate change really unleashes if this level of analytical insight is commonplace amongst, what do I call them? <laughs> Those left behind by a society of rent-seeking. It's ironic that uh, some of these people into incredible conspiracies uh, fall into the trap of the biggest conspiracy of all, divide and conquer to allow the wealthy to continue plundering this earth. All right, my name's Carl Fitzgerald. 